Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and like most people of color, I have spent my life dealing with people in positions of power using technical language and fancy phrases to keep us out of positions of power in the rooms where decisions were made. When I was on the school board in San Francisco, we did a joint meeting with 12 elected officials trying to decide should we take an action. Our lawyer was actually out of town, so they sent us to another lawyer, and that person's advice was just don't do anything. And I just remember this feeling of disempowerment about you have all these people who are all elected officials and were completely at the mercy of the lawyer who had all the specialized knowledge. And that was not an inconsequential part of the reason. I was like, I'm going to go to law school. I don't want the lawyer to tell me what I can't do. I want to know for myself what actually the situation is. And then similarly, when I wrote the book, Brown is the New White, the people in democratic politics in particular are kind of like, yeah, well, all that people of color stuff is nice, but we want to win. So we have to look at the numbers. We have to crunch the numbers. And I was like, all right, you want to crunch the numbers? Fine. I'm going to go get two folks with PhDs to do deep data drives and crunch all these different numbers. And so we also see it in terms of elections. We're told that people of color can't run for certain offices. We can't win an election because we have to look at these fancy statistical formulas and regression analyses and probabilistic modeling. And it just so happens that all of that always results in people of color, people of color places and issues get deprioritized. But I'm happy to say that often the emperor has no clothes. It reminds me of this scene from the movie Nuts from way back in the day where Barbara Streisand was starring in. There's this courtroom scene where she talks about how we think that people in power are in those positions because they're smarter and they have more information and they're more qualified and talented. And she says, maybe, maybe they're just assholes with power. And that has always stuck with me over the years. And so particularly as I've moved into these different situations and have begun to peel away the situation to see that those folks who are making these decisions often don't have better information and that those in more consequentially in terms of politics and the future of the country and our democracy, those with the power to determine which races are winnable, where hundreds of millions of dollars should be spent, what issues should be emphasized and which should be pushed to the side are often doing it with numbers that are wrong. Their models are flawed. And not only are they infected with systemic racial bias, but they're statistically inadequate on top of it. And so that's how we've arrived as we head into the midterms with this national consensus that Democrats are doomed. Inflation and Biden's unpopularity means Republicans are going to retake control, and that's what the data shows. But it's actually not what the data shows. And you only see such a bleak picture about the political landscape if you leave people of color out of the picture. And that is not what we do at Democracy in Color. And that's why we saw what was possible in Georgia in 2020 and 2021. And it's why we have a different take on the midterm elections and on the future of politics in the coming months and years even. And that's what we're going to dive into today. And in addition to my co-host, Charlene Chang, no data deep dive will be complete without our resident data doctor, Dr. Julie Martinez Ortega, both of whom join me today. How are you both? How are you holding up under the data points of hot temperatures over the past period of time? Hi, Steve. This is Julie. It's great to um, to be here with y'all. And it's really hot these days out here. The worst part, though, are the crazy summer thunderstorms that are knocking trees down all around us. And we're definitely seeing climate change 
right here before our eyes. Yeah, somebody posted, I think they were in Texas, they posted up that, well, it's down to 80, I can go out now. Right? So. <laughs> yeah, I'm also feeling those statistics and statistical norms and numbers. I'm still in Canada, in British Columbia, interior British Columbia. We just finished, I think about over a week of triple digit heat. There was one day that was 106. Oh my God. And, oh. and then my phone, which was actually in the shade, uh, it's an iPhone. It, it, there was a message that popped up. I had never seen it before, which and it said, "Phone is too hot." Too hot. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I've actually seen and that. Like needs, needs to cool down before it can function. I went, "Oh my god!" And that was in the shade. Oh, wow. And now it's um, it is into the you know it's back to like in the 90s, so feels cooler. It might even be in the 80s in the morning, which feels cooler, but almost on cue. Basically, yesterday, August 1st, was a smoky day because now we have mm. fires all around. Uh -oh. wow. So it is now kind of like the new norm. And yeah, mm. but um, aside from that, we've been having a really nice summer. Even though it was super hot, we were enjoying a lot of water, water time, lakes and rivers. Mm. It's beautiful. Sounds great. Let's get right into it. Where I'm excited Speaking about today. things heating yeah. up, the election yes. season. I know. I keep thinking about the, you know, the title of our episode, and we keep keep thinking of something like election ratings so white or election, <laughs> you know, statistical, uh, you know, numbers number crunching so white on average. And I, that's why I'm excited for us to talk about and give our listeners some insight into how you guys, Steve and Julie, are doing the work. It, you know, small but mighty team in in flipping that. And it's so maddening to me that nobody else is doing it and that we've been going this long looking at numbers that are filtered basically through one lens. So Steve and Julie, as the midterms are getting closer and they're getting closer every day, you've both been in your happy place, buried uh, you know, in your spreadsheets, number crunching. Again, you've been just looking at the upcoming midterms quite differently than most mainstream Democrats have been. Other political pundits and mainstream news outlets have. And that's why what you guys are doing is so important. Steve, can you explain what you and Julie have been up to and why you've been spending basically hours in Excel spreadsheets while the rest of us have been at the beach? Well, Julie's in Excel spreadsheets. I then upload them to Google Sheets where it's uh, prettier and easier to manipulate for me. But Ju Julie refuses to go there. But that's a data nerd uh, point there. Right. And so the Headline is not going to be a surprise to people is that most analysts overlook racial demographics in their electoral analysis. And it's really quite fascinating because even if you look at like um, Nate Silver and 538, if you go to their sites and you look at their, that they like overwhelm you in data. There's like numbers and numbers and like length, there's very little editing going on. <laughs> Lots of things poured into the, they show this and that. And you would think, given how much they talk about numbers, that they would talk about racial data, but they don't. And so that's what we're, the fundamental component of actually is to take the reality. So what, uh, I was doing this this morning. Since the beginning of exit polls in 1976, an average of 88% of African Americans have voted for the Democratic candidate and an average of 55% of whites have voted for the Republican. No Democrat has won the white vote. Uh, since they started doing exit polls. So that's a pretty important data point for statistical analysis and data gurus, but it's completely left out of all of these different rankings and analyses. And so what Julie and I have been working on is we're quantifying the analysis of uh, racial demographics in looking at elections. And that when we do that, not surprising, 
that you see a very different picture around elections from what you're getting in the national media. So without getting too into the weeds, Julie, I wanted to see if you can help explain to us and the listeners what went into creating this analysis and how does this analysis, for example, compare with other major election analysis from outlets, um, you know, the two most well-known ones being Cook Report and the ones that come out from 538? Well, Georgia is a great example um, of what's going on here and what we wanted to really try to address. So mainstream Democrats miss Georgia's potential in 2020, basically because they lacked a race conscious approach to the analysis. So 538 had Georgia as lean R, but obviously Asif won. And nearly three quarters of people of color tend to vote Dem. So keeping that in mind, you know, would have been really important. Um, If more people of color vote, that improves Democrats' chances, right? And that's why Republicans are so obsessed with making it harder for people of color to vote, right? Big surprise. Especially in places where people of color can make a difference for Democrats, Yeah, if I could just jump in real quick, too. It's not just the analysts and the pundits, right? I mean, the the title of my chapter in Georgia in the new book called Georgia, quote, that's not one we expected. And that (laughs) quote is from Joe Biden on election night. Mm -hmm. So, the you know, Democratic presidential nominee with his massive team and data crunchers and analysts that he's reading off how the election results are coming in. He says, Georgia, we're ahead in Georgia. That's not one we expected. And that's because the people who were doing the analysis and interpretation did not properly understand. They missed it. Exactly. Well, and may I add, I'm just going to assume that they were male and pale predominantly. What is just, uh, what's our friend Ludovic just, had this. Uh, I just tum- need to say that. Ludovic had this Tumblr <laughs> site. Our friend Ludovic blamed the California Dover Table. I don't know if he's, well, the fact that it was Tumblr tells you how long ago it was, but it was like its website. And it was It was called too pale, too male. Mm-hmm. And he would take pictures of organizations from there <laughs> and he would put them up on there on his site to actually shame them. Uh, okay. So, so yes, I presume that Biden's team would have made it onto there. And I also think that those people who do a lot of these other analyses are in that same vein. Right. right. And, and really, I mean, it comes down to the fact that people rely so heavily on polling but polling offers false precision, right? It's inherently based on assumptions about who's going to vote, right? You have to take all the data about who's going to vote and make choices. And it's subjective, which choices you make can really influence who you think's going to win, right? What your, your win outcomes will be. So in 2018, as Steve loves to point out, a certain big super PAC discouraged donors from investing in a heavily Latino district in the California Central Valley. And they did that because they believed that Latinos didn't vote in midterms and that the polling wasn't favorable there. So people should not move money to that district. But the pollsters they're listening to were just polling those who had previously voted which were, you know, big surprise, mainly white voters. And that distorts the picture that you're going to get from your polling. Communities for New California, an organization out there that does great work, knocked on 30,000 doors in that district, despite the fact that the super PAC was discouraging it. And they actually succeeded in boosting Latino turnout in that cycle. And great surprise, the Dem won that seat by 
800 votes. So you can see where the difference in moving forward and actually investing and running a good, strong program can make. Yes, we won't. We won't name the super PAC, but it rhymes with House Majority PAC. Rhymes a lot. (laughs) So, So anyhow, that distortion is playing itself out across the spectrum, right, of political analysis and predictions right now as we approach the 2022 election. And it's creating a falsely negative picture of what's to come and what's possible. Uh, so uh, thanks, Julie. I, you know, I, unlike you and Steve, are probably more like the average people, uh, you know, people out there where a lot of this is uh, kind of new to me in terms of how the cookie gets made. Right. So but I do understand that the major indices like Cook Report and 538, they base their ratings on past election results. And then they draw they're trying to draw some conclusions for that in terms of how um, the next cycle elections and the next cycle might play out. And I'm just wondering what's wrong with that. What is your critique? You and Steve, like, what is your critique of that? Uh, aren't past election results good indicators of what might happen next time? So 538 mainly actually doesn't look that closely at past results. They mainly take polls and, you know, polls that other people do and they average them together public polling, right, and develop their own fancy statistical models based on those polls are, you know, basically trying to look across a lot of different polls and average them together, come up with ways to understand what's happening on a macro level. But what people don't understand about polling is that while it looks objective because it's, you know, based on numbers, right, it's actually very subjective because, as I said before, the pollsters determine using their own judgment, their own experiences, who they think is going to be a likely voter and therefore who should be polled, surveyed, right? And that's going to heavily influence the polls that a group like 538 is averaging together across the country and over an election cycle. So junk in, junk out, right? Cook does use past election results. That's all they use. And that's a good starting point, uh, but it's missing the kind of dynamics that, that we saw in Georgia, right? when you organize and have the resources to organize, you can boost turnout among voters of color and among uh, single white women, among other groups, young people, right? People that wouldn't ordinarily have turnout levels at the rates that, you know, conservative, older, home-owning white folks might have. Steve and I have been working on goes you know, really attempts to go beyond looking at just those past election results. And it's including for the first time an analysis of the voting patterns by racial group, right? And it's also looking at the underlying racial demographics of of a district. So in almost every case that you look at, white people will vote at a higher rate than people of color. I I think that's probably true in every single congressional district in the country. Maybe there's one or two where it's different. But in general, that's the dynamic, you know, for a whole host of historical reasons that we don't have to get into now. But listeners of this podcast are well aware of that. Yeah. And let me let me actually just do a, a bigger picture piece here that even I was kind of it's like we all get infected by these you know, views that are actually out there. And I think we were talking about a little bit even after the after the Dobbs decision overturning Roe is that there's this easy to get into this pessimistic mindset 
that everything's wrong. We don't, those of us who have, you know, progressive values are in the losing end. We're in the minority. We're in this country that doesn't share our values, et cetera, et cetera. But that's quantitatively not even what the situation is. Like, I was thinking about it myself. I was like, well, how many seats are up, et cetera, et cetera. So I was like, wait, Democrats have the majority in the House. So they've already won most of the seats that are there. And so this presumption mm-hmm. that they're going to lose most of them is completely inaccurate. And if you think back, and I, you know, again, I begin to crunch these different numbers and really just look at these bigger picture pieces, the Democratic presidential nominee has won the popular vote in 90% of the elections since 1992. Every single presidential election since 92, with the exception of 2004, the Democrat has won the, won the national popular vote. And so that says something, that's a data point around the composition of this country, regardless of what the Supreme Court decides. And it also, it reveals so fundamentally why the first point of attack from the right is to suppress voting because they can count better than the many Democrats can. They know that they have to reduce the number of people voting in order to advance a minority radical agenda. And so that's how these different things come together as they suppress the vote. And then they're able to drive through things like overturning Roe and attacking education, critical race theory, et cetera. So I just think that that fundamental starting point gets lost a lot. And the presumption is so widespread. It's such a given that, yes, Democrats are going to lose in the midterms, but not if people vote and we eliminate the racial voting gap in terms of what actually moves forward. All right. So again, most mainstream headlines are just spelling this doom and gloom for Democrats like it's a done deal because they need to ultimately defend 10 House districts that Trump won in 2020. But what we want to remind people is that those articles and pundits and reports often just gloss over the fact that Republicans have incumbents that will have to defend at least 15 districts that Biden won in 2020. According to a recent article, I just wanted to quote that uh, it says redistricting will force Democrats to protect at least five incumbents in districts Trump carried last election, the most politically hazardous place to be for the midterms. But then further down in that same article, it says there are 15 seats that Republicans currently hold in districts that voted for Biden. So that's the kind of thing we're talking about, which is like the headline is based on telling one part of the story. And then if you read the whole article or listen to the whole report, you learn more, which is that it's not as cut and dry as uh, you, you, you've, you've been told from, you know, from the headlines in the beginning of the article. It's kind of like a media bias, Steve. I know it really gets under your skin. It definitely gets under mine. So tell us, what are some of the big picture findings that you have for this year's midterms based on the research you and Julie have been doing? Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's media bias and not just in terms of telling one part of the picture. It's always telling the, the story as Democrats are doomed. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's such a reflexive journalistic instinct that it doesn't even get questioned anymore. When it's like in the article you're talking about, it's just absurd. It says, oh, Democrats have five seats that are at risk. It's like Republicans have 15, but the whole thrust of the article is Democrats <laughs> are in trouble. And what people are missing overall is that after all the redistricting and the attempts at gerrymandering, et cetera, et cetera, that again, 218 seats is a majority in the House. When you look at the numbers of how these different districts voted, Biden won 225 of the newly drawn districts. So again, Democrats should be able to prevail if they mobilize and get their voters out to the polls. 
So that I think is the real picture in terms of what's going on with the election. That's let me say one other thing too, what we were talking about before around the, the country and the, the majority, et cetera. Think about this the other day. People talk a lot about the the headwinds and the national climate and the national environment. And this is a given that the national environment is against Democrats and the incumbents. Inflation is high, and you know, these other different national problems. And that again is an analysis that completely overlooks what's happening in terms of the fundamental struggle over the racial identity of this country and the racial backlash and the anti-multicultural backlash. So we are really engaged in an all-out battle, which is why I titled this my book, How We Win the Civil War, over is this going to be a multiracial, multicultural democracy or not? And so there's all these attacks in that you put the reproductive rights choice attacks there, the critical race theory, anti-LGBTQ and the anti-trans legislation, all is part of these attacks. And so that's part of the national climate as well. I would say that to say that looking at the midterm elections, those people who lean into taking up that fight and championing that cause are going to be doing better. And that's some of the underlying mathematical analysis that we've shown is that if you champion that fight for multiracial, multicultural democracy, and you look at the electorate and these districts with a race-conscious lens, that it's actually a much more promising picture. And so that's, I think, what I wanted to highlight that point. Steve, I really appreciate the framing that you and Julie are putting forth because, again, I tend to read mainstream news uh, just like everybody else. And really, if you're just focused on that, it is true. Like you just get this sense of how vulnerable the Democrats are this December. It's like a done deal. There's this argument that is based on, quote unquote, history. It feels compelling and terrifying. Again, and it's that kind of data point that the last time party occupying the White House and that same party won a House and Senate majority during the midterms was back in 2002. So when you think about that, it does sometimes feel like, okay, what are the chances this fall that we're going to beat those odds? And for you guys to be reminding us all that there are plenty of Republican House electeds who should be on the edge of their seats right now. Uh, and of course, there's that's a big if. If Democrats can get their act together by election day, the clock is ticking. There's only three months to go. So it's just good to remember that there is a chance, there is a path to winning. But I did want to ask you, what about those vulnerable Democrats who are um, House elected right now in, in the House for Democrats? How should they be thinking about their races right now? Yeah, well, I just want to say one thing again, just in terms of the overall piece, is that, the again, the fundamental assumption and narrative on the midterm elections is wrong. And, that, and, that, and, there are, and people feel like, well, the president's party gets punished by the voters because the voters don't like their policies and their things aren't changing as fast as they want to. And that's the easy, facile narrative, which is incorrect. What happens is that the voters who elected the president tend to stay home in the midterms because they've got the president. And because they stay home, then the other side does better. That's the dynamic. And the implications of that analysis are very different. You then have to look at inspiring your voters investing in the groups that turn them out. That's the fundamental piece. And that's what these Democrats need to look at who are imperiled, is that they need to focus in on who are the actual voters in their district and what can they communicate that to them to summon them to the battle that to, to preserve this as a multiracial democracy. I was watching an interview of Stacey Abrams from back in 20. 
21 early and the first thing they said, how are you feeling? First thing she says is, well, we still have a democracy, so I feel pretty good, right? <laughs> and so, because that was not a given in January of 2021. Seriously. And so fundamentally people need to communicate with, inspire the voters of color in their district, let them know that they're on their side in this fight and invest in the groups who are trying to turn out voters of color. So if you look in, for instance, for instance in Virginia, Abigail Spanberger in Virginia's seventh congressional district is an incumbent uh, Democratic congresswoman. She's one of the loudest voices of, about against being too progressive and too closely aligned to people of color, et cetera. But her district's 37 percent people of color. She is going to need to rely upon the work of groups like New Virginia Majority to get out those voters of color. And so as I was you know, going through the analyses, it brought me back to the movie uh, Terminator 2, I believe it is, where the, the Terminator says this person, this famous line came out of it, come with me if you want to live. All across the country, we've got these groups of color who really are saying to these incumbent and imperiled Democrats, come with me if you want to live, because we've got to get the people of color out to vote. So the second major takeaway, I know that both of you want to lift up today is around money and how it's spent. I know that we often told our listeners, and Steve, you've really written about this a lot, which is that Democrats, unfortunately, don't have a great track record, to say the least, about smart spending of money. Democracy in Color had issued report cards. We did a project, which were these report cards in 2020. And one of the findings through that report card project was that the Senate Super PAC had spent $7 million in Iowa that cycle, and zero in Georgia as of August 2020, which was, again, just a few months before Election Day. And now we know which state was more instrumental to flipping the Senate and which state was more important. Right. That's what PAC's name rhymes with Senate Majority PAC. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> it rhymes a lot with that. So basically, my understanding from your findings and your research is that there's this imbalance between who has the money, where it's being spent versus who actually needs it the most, places where it could be best spent. And essentially, there are candidates who have more money in their coffers than they need based on the risk of losing their seats. And I wanted to ask you how you came to that conclusion. Well, it's kind of a rich get richer thing. Some candidates are able to stockpile money while others starve, right? And are really, you know, on the edge. So it's the way the process works now. You know, it's every person for himself. Him is usually the right <laughs> pronoun there. Um, but Dems need to share that wealth if they're going to survive overall as a party and hold that majority. So for instance, Josh Gottheimer in New Jersey's fifth congressional district has more than 14 million sitting in the bank. But Biden won his district by 12 points. Meanwhile, over in Arizona's first congressional district, Dems could win that seat by boosting the turnout of people of color in the district. And there's a strong coalition in the Arizona Wins organization, but they need money to do that work. And the money isn't there yet. Hopefully it will come, but we're you know in those last days and weeks. And then in that Arizona uh, one district, right, whereas across the country, a Democrat's got the $14 million that Julia was talking about in Arizona's first congressional district, uh, Jevin Hodge, as the Democratic nominee there, he has just $400,000. And as wow. well as the groups there, right, also need money to do the voter turnout work. So 
The Democrats need to share the wealth and put it in places where they could actually prevail. But that's a challenge that it's not quite clear they're clear on yet. And I just want to point out Josh Gothammer in New Jersey, white male. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, but, uh, <laughs> and then Devin Hodges, African-American candidate. True. Yes. Yes. Racism is real. But I do think it's what Julie was saying about the everyone for their self situation is the is the starting point. It's just kind of the nature of politics. And you see it also over in um, in California. There are six Republican held seats that could potentially be flipped in California. And there's a lot of voter mobilization infrastructure. California Donor Table um, has helped to seed over the past decade. And so Katie Porter has become like a national, you know, uh, star through her you know, social media and her questioning and, and, and committees. She has $20 million sitting in the bank. And so if they were smart, she would move some of that money to the civic engagement groups in places like Orange County to be able to boost voter turnout voters of color so that they could flip some of those seats as well. Before we wrap up, I wanted to talk about the Latino vote, that everlasting hot topic, which continues to grow in importance each election and more fraught with different takes. There's been plenty of wrong takes, as we know, on, you know, in the democracy and color side and sort of our listeners know that by now that there's just a lot of wrong takes about how to understand Latino voter behavior and how to break through you know, this narrative that Democrats are losing Latinos. So first of all, there's a real misinterpretation of the 2020 election outcomes where people are thinking Trump did surprisingly well in some districts, especially in Texas. Uh, as Michelle Tramillo, our friend over at Texas Organizing Project, noted in real time, said they're, quote, they're getting out more of their Latinos than we are, end quote, right? And that's, um, you know, I mean, truth right, right there. So what happened was that we saw a surge of more conservative Latinos who sat out past elections, but they did come out in 2020 to back Trump, right? There's been a lot of analysis, really good work done by groups like Equis on sort of the psychology of what was happening in some of these heavily Latino communities. And one of the things they found was that a lot of conservative Latinos felt there was sort of a green light to be able to go out and say and think and do and vote in ways that the community had really not um, held out as acceptable before, right? So this is not a situation though, where you see progressive Latinos turning their backs, defecting from the Democratic Party and you know giving their votes over to Trump and the Republicans. Not at all, right? If you look at Hidalgo County, right? So that's a 93% Latino county. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, pretty much everybody there is Latino. Yeah. So the Dem vote there, um, vote share, uh, shrank from almost 70% to under 60%. But regardless, Biden still got 20,000 more votes than Obama got a decade earlier. But of course, uh, Trump got 75,000 more votes. So turnout increased dramatically overall, but it really increased among the conservative Latinos who felt they had, like I said, a green light to openly support Trump. 
The picture of weakening support among Latinos overall, though, is inaccurate. So Dem support held, but GOP support among Latinos swelled. Both can be true at the same time. And that's how we ended up with the results that we got in a few small counties. And let me just emphasize, these counties are not, you know, I I don't even remember off the top of my head, the largest city that is located in Hidalgo County, but it's tiny and you would never have heard of it. Spoken like a Mexican-American from San Antonio dissing the other counties. Yeah, yeah. Those of us from the big city of San Antonio, you know, yeah. So, but, uh, so even if there were some erosion among Latino voters overall in Texas, it is still largely a democratic constituency in a place like Texas, right? So in Texas statewide, Latinos, and I say Latinos, this is almost, you know, 90 something percent Mexican Americans, right? So in Texas statewide, Mexican Americans vote 58% Democrat. Even in Florida, it's still the majority. So exit polls there showed that 53% of Latinos voted for Biden. Yeah. And that's really important because I was talking to actually, uh, I can't remember who it was, but I think it was somebody that's involved in major uh, donor democratic politics. And they were said something about like a Latino area, but then they like paused, oh, but we're not doing well among Latinos. Maybe that's not a right direction to go in. And so this this narrative has seeped into the mindset, again, in ways that are contrary to the data. I mean, even if you conceded all of the erosion, which it's incorrect, as Julie was saying, Latinos are still largely democratic. And so that just, we just have to own and embrace this reality that the electorate is not what everybody keeps trying to say that it is. It is multiracial and that multiracial is a democracy. And on that note, that is all the time we have for today. Thank you, Dr. Martinez, for sharing your expertise. Thank you, Charlene, for taking time out from uh, evading the bears in Canada. Thank you all for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. Democracy in Color is also on Instagram. You can follow us at Democracy in Color for some awesome memes by Fola Onifade. If you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker, whose birthday is this week, and who shared with us the information that if you go to Starbucks and tell them it's your birthday, you can get a free item. Also produced the support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier, recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, keep it safe.